would you bow in prayer with me? Father, we approach your word to us today. We pray that you would clear our hearts and minds so that we can concentrate, so that we can hear your spirit speaking. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you for who you are in your word to us in the body. Thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Okay, today we're going to continue our study in Ephesians. I think you know now that Ephesians has two distinct divisions. The first division talks about our unity in Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 3, 21. This is the theology section, the orthodoxy session. Orthodoxy means the right opinion, right, true, or straight opinion, orthodox. What, what is right when we think about God? The next section, B, is chapters 4, 1 through 624. And this is the unity of the body. This is our practice. We have theology and we have practice, and they have to go together. This is orthopraxy, right practice. And I've been given the bridge passage between these two. Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. It ties both of these sections together. It looks both ways. There's a lot in here. So, let's get ready to go. It's interesting, look at the beginning of Ephesians. The first verse. Paul begins the epistle by stating his office and stating that he received that office from Christ. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. We'll come to this again. But here he states who he is. He states his office, thus implying his authority. Why can he write to the Ephesians the way he does? He begins this second part in chapter 4 and verse 1 by stating that he is the prisoner of the Lord. And he really, he states this three times throughout the book, that he's a prisoner. Even though he has the office of apostle, the highest office in the church at that time, he takes the low position of a prisoner. As he stated, he was an apostle by Jesus Christ, so he is a prisoner of the Lord, or better, a prisoner in the Lord. He chooses to speak from the lowly position. What he talks about in the next verse, verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, 
bearing with one another in love. He could have come with commands. And he does in some of his epistles. He states as authority, this is what you must do. But here in Ephesians, he is giving us the picture of what he wants, how he wants us to be. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, Mr. Maxwell used to tell us all the time, when you see therefore in Scripture, find out what it is there for. It means, in the light of the preceding theology, therefore, in the light of what I've told you, particularly 3.14 through 20, but especially that last phrase, to him be glory in the church. Paul's going on to the next topic now, and that topic is how to bring glory in the church. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech, beseech, not command. Again, he's taking that low position. He's talking about with all lowliness. He is an apostle. He could command it, but he beseeches. He implores, he exhorts, he exemplifies his plea for humility. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. And he's talked about that calling in the previous section. He's told us we were chosen before the foundation of the world. We're adopted as sons. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're made alive. We're raised to sit in heavenly places. He's told us where we have been called to in the preceding passages. So he says, I want you to walk worthy now of where you are. We are to walk worthy. How are we to walk worthy? Paul talks about it in three different ways. In two, with all lowliness and gentleness. Lowliness is another word for humility, and in some of your translations, you probably have the word humility there. Vine describes this word humility as the subjection of self under the authority of and in response to the love of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to conform the believer to the character of Christ. Loneliness, humility, subjection of self to Christ. Gentleness is really the word meekness. Many people misunderstand meekness. I think the best definition I've heard of meekness is its strength under control. It's not weakness. It's knowing how to get angry at the right time and for the right reason. 
We talk about Jesus, meek and mild. Would you have thought of Jesus as meek and mild in the temple the day he drove out the money changers? Would you, thought, would you have thought of Jesus the meek and mild when he said, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you whited sepulchers. Meekness is strength under control. How are, to, how are we to walk worthy? Second, how are we to walk worthy? With long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Long-suffering is an interesting word. It actually means patience. But it comes from two words. Macros, we get our word macro from it, the biggest, right? Macro, a long, distant, or far-off, large, and thumus, temper, passion, emotion, or in that word can also be the word thumomai, which means to be furious or burn with intense anger. Put it together and it really means having a long temper or a temper that doesn't blow up easily. And bearing patient, it means bearing patiently with the foibles, faults, and infirmities of others. And it's most commonly used in the New Testament talking about God's attitude toward us, his long-suffering, his patience with us in our foibles, in our infirmities. Forbearance, bearing with one another, forbearing. This isn't a question of maintaining a facade of courtesy while inwardly seething with resentment. But it is spirit-empowered, positive love to those who irritate, disturb, or embarrass us. Forbearance. It's not talking about sin. It's talking about those things that get under our skin that each of us have, those little habits that, why is she doing that? Why is he doing that? Ooh. Forbearance. Walking worthy. Forbearing. Third, how do we walk worthy? Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring, the word doesn't just mean trying, it means being very diligent, working very hard at it. It's the idea of quickly hastening, going to do something with the implication of associated energy, putting in a tense effort and motivation. It carries the element of haste, urgency, and even a sense of crisis. It suggests zealous, concentration and diligent effort and suggests difficulty and resolute determination are needed. It's not just something that, oh, keep the unity. 
It's work at it really hard, work at it really diligently. I think you all know that little ditty. To dwell above with the saints we love, oh, that'll be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. That's why we need the forbearance, right? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity comes from the Greek word one. Henos, one. It doesn't describe an external ecclesiastical union, but an internal spiritual unity. It's not talking about being members of a denomination or that kind of thing. It's talking about an internal unity. It implies that we should be united in temper and infection, affection, not infection. <laughs> We've been all working on not being united in infection, haven't we? Have we been working as hard at being united in affection? Not split up into factions or parties. The spirit in the body has created a basic unity. That is our position. We're united in the body because of the oneness brought about by the new covenant, which nothing can destroy. Even though believers can still behave, and that's our experience, as if this fact is not true. Unity. Walk worthy. Walk in unity. What is the basis of our unity? I think we get that in the next verses. There is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father. I think this is interesting. To each one of us, grace is given. I see grace as the source of it. God's grace is the source of our unity. That God should want to be one with me is astounding. That God would want me to be one with you sometimes is also astounding. That grace was given to each one of us. Not separately. It's given to us, each one. I like in there that there is the Trinity, one Lord Jesus, one Holy Spirit, one God and Father. The Trinity, one. One body, the Lord's body, one. 
one hope, one faith, one baptism. I think he mentions baptism because when he first came to Ephesians, there were those who had been baptized by John and they didn't know about the change in the emphasis of what baptism was all about. They hadn't yet heard of the coming of the Holy Spirit, of the founding of the church, so they didn't know of the baptism of being brought into that one body. And I think that's why he mentions this here, one baptism. There was one baptism that brings us into Christ, and that's not necessarily water baptism, as some people believe. It's, it's the working of the Holy Spirit sealing us, and the outward baptism that we're going to celebrate next week is the outward symbol of this inward baptism, this becoming one in the body has taken place. This is one. Each petal is different, but it's one. Our one hope. And this good news of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, to all the ethnos, and then will come the end. Is that our one hope? Oh no, I want to see my kids married first. Oh no, I want to see this first. Oh no, I want to see that first. Do we want one more day of little children being molested? Do we want one more day of the 39 or 40 wars that are going on in our world? Do we want one more day of pandemic? Do we want one more day of political infighting? Do we want one more? What do we want? What is our hope? Our hope is in Christ that he is coming again to put an end to this. Is that something that unites us? One hope. Or have we all got our little hopes off here and off there? One body. Christ is the head of the body. I have only one head. I've been watching um, a story of twins that were born, they have one body, but they have two heads. And the confusion and the, the, um, they, they are really struggling. You can't have two heads, really, and make a success of it. There's one head and one spirit. God the Father gave us Christ as head. Christ has given us the Spirit who indwells us. I think of the Spirit as the nervous system of the body. Our nerves go to every part of our body and they carry the messages from our head to every part of the body. Every move I make, thousands of messages have been flying back and forth. 
It's the spirit that makes it possible that this hand isn't going off this direction while this hand's going off this direction and this foot isn't doing that. It's a spirit given to us for unity. Marcia and I see what happens when that is interfered with. I've been with our kids. I've been at the doctors. I've watched many of the people with Huntington's degree, a disease, and those messages are not coming through. It is not pretty. We have one spirit who unites us. In the local congregation, not everybody may be united. See, there's one little brown dot down there. There may be people in the congregation who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ who have not been brought into life by the Spirit. They are not part of the body. If you are in that position, you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, you, you can't understand what I'm talking about. You don't have part of this. Each individual congregation is indwelt by the Spirit. Each individual is indwelt by the Spirit. And therefore, I am connected to you, and you are connected to me, and we are connected to the head. The church is bigger than the local congregation. In Three Hills, we have seven or eight or nine congregations. Those congregations are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, just the same as we are. And yet, I've heard, oh, that church, oh, those people, oh. Why do we do that when we are one? in one body. Local congregations and each local congregation individual believers, but all united by the Spirit. Apologies to Martin Schultz if I tell the next story and don't get all the details right, but at one point, Prairie was thinking of going to the Philippines to set up the grad school. And Marcia and I were going to be the uh, dorm parents for the grad school in the Philippines. The idea was that there was a city in the Philippines, Mandaluyan, which at one time was called the armpit of the Philippines. Every vile thing that you could think of took place in that city. There were 52 congregations in that city 
And somehow they got the vision that the Lord should be Lord of Mandaluyan. So they spent time together as congregations. How are we going to see that the Lord becomes Lord of Mandaluyan? In doing that, they begin to look at why is this congregation in this town? Why is this congregation in this town? What part of the body is this congregation? What part of the body is this congregation? Why are we here? Why are there 52 congregations here? And they figured out that there was a congregation where there were a lot of people who had political savvy. And as they talked, they said, why don't you guys go to the city council and you listen and tell us what's going on? What's the political climate of this city? So they, that church faithfully went to the city council, wrote down what was happening. They didn't interfere. Came back, told the churches, here's what they're thinking. About a year later, the mayor, a lady, came to them and said, what are you guys doing? She said, every time I try to build a new casino, I can't buy the land, I can't get anything, but if I try a new youth thing for the youth, it happens just like that. They explained to her, and she became a believer. There was another congregation that was very environmentally savvy. The city was bare. They wanted some trees. They went out, did some nice landscaping. The problem was that the poor people needed the wood, so they cut the trees down, and the city was back bare again. So this church prayed and said, what do we do? And they planted the trees in the name of the biggest criminals in jail in the city. Nobody would touch that tree because that's so-and-so's tree. They found a congregation that was very sensitive to spiritual warfare. That congregation went to the roads that came into the city every day and prayed, keep the evil out. They went through all those congregations and found out who they were, why they were here, why God put them in that city, began to work together as a body. That city has now been called the um, showcase of the Philippines. One body, one God and Father of all, above all, through all, in you all. When God looks at us as a congregation, when he looks at us as the congregations, I'm sorry, when the surrounding community looks at us as PTC congregation or looks at us with the other congregations, do they see one God above us all, through us all, in us all, working? Ah, been kind of heavy here. Uh, 
let's look at peanuts. Lucy walks in and wants the channel changed. And Charlie sits there and uh, she says, change that channel. And Charlie, it's his house, and he says, what right do you have come in? Tell me to change the channel. See these five fingers? When they come together, it's an awesome power. Charlie changes the channel. Sigh. Why can't you guys get united like that? Now we come to a little bit of a parenthesis in this. Some people look at it as uh, one of Paul's traditional sidetracks. It isn't. But he talks about the one who ascended and the one who descended. The one who has the keys to death and hell. That's not mentioned in this passage, but it is in others. We have no problem with Christ ascended, but there's real division and what he descended means. Many of the commentators think it simply means he came down to earth and lived amongst us. But you'll find an equal number of commentators who say, no, he actually went down to hell and preached in hell to the, to the uh, saints there. And there's different levels of hell. Some say he just went to Hades and preached there. Some say he went down to the bottom. I'm not sure. And for this message, that's not... Um, big point, but just so you know, I'm, I am not unaware that there are differences on this passage. He led captivity captive. This is another, you got a number of interpretations on there. Some people say he led death and hell as captive. And that's more like this picture. Others say, no, he led the Old Testament believers to heaven as they had been captives in Hades. This picture doesn't quite fit that interpretation, I don't think, but he led captivity to captive. He set us free from death is one thing we know. He, he captivated death. He broke the power of death. He gave gifts to men. If you look in Psalm 68, 18, where Paul is quoting, did he misquote the passage? You have received gifts among men, it says. And he says, you gave gifts to men. Ah. If you look at the Old Testament quotes in the New Testament, you'll find many of them are different. Part of that is because Paul may have been using a different translation. Part of it is that it's not such a difference when the conquering general came in, he was given gifts by the city. We do it. We give people the key to the city, right? We give them gifts when we have these big parades in. If somebody's done something special, we give them gifts. But the general then would distribute gifts to all his men. So that act of gifting has both ideas in it. He received gifts. He gives gifts. So it may not be that Paul is misquoting it all. He's just picking one aspect of the giving. 
He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Different translation, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. The five-fold ministry of the church. And I'd never thought of this before, but these are called the ascension gifts. These are different than any of the other gifts mentioned in scripture. These are people. These are not skills. People are offices. And as he went and left the church in, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, these offices or these people have been put in. Now, there's a lot of conflict over what do these mean? A number of people say, well, apostles and prophets don't happen in our day anymore. That's done. I don't personally believe that. So to me, apostles are those who go to plant churches where they have never been planted before. I take a missionary who's doing, being the first person in to a place where there's never been a church. He is an apostle to those people. Prophets are those who warn and exhort those who foretell. I believe that this is alive and well today too. That there are those whose gifting is to warn. I think of Dr. Francis Schaeffer. When I listened to him in Japan when he came and talked to us as missionaries, he foretold what's happening today and he warned us of where the church will be today. Dr. Schaefer was a prophet. Evangelists, those who tell the good news, those who make disciples. You have to become a disciple before you can be taught. So making disciples is the first step. Preachers, those who break, expound, exhort from the word bringing it into applicable focus. And teachers, those who spread the knowledge, helping and understanding to make the word clear. Now, why did Christ give these gifts, these people, to the church? It tells us in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, to equip his people. You get that. I did not like the word minister. Oh, he's our minister. Who are the ministers of the church? You are. What is the minister, therefore? What is the apostle, the prophet, that to, to equip you? To equip Christ's people. Why? What are the gifts of equipping for? For the works of service. It's not the shepherds who have the lambs. It's the sheep who have the lambs. It's not the shepherds who have the lambs. It's the sheep who bear the lambs. It's not the shepherds who have the lambs. It's the sheep who bear the lambs. 
And how many congregations have that backwards? It's the pastor who's supposed to be going out telling people. It's the pastor who's supposed to be leading people to Christ. No. He is here to equip you to do that. What are the works of service to achieve? To equip Christ's body, the people of Christ's body, for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. And that's not just PTC, that's the body worldwide. You are to be building the church. Edify is used in some uh, translations, and it literally means to build. We get the word edifice from edify. You're building a building. And the church is often referred to as a building. What is the goal of the edifying or the work of building the body? And that's in verse 13. The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We're building a common belief in and a common experiential knowledge of Christ together. Who's building that? Who's equipping you to build that? And what's the goal? To the perfect man. Perfect doesn't mean no problems. It means mature. And he gives us four marks of maturity. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ is the first mark of maturity. In other words, to become Christ-like, to display Christ's attributes. Till we are like Christ, our head. If my head and my body were at odds doing different things, it'd look pretty clear. If my body wasn't doing what my head told it, people, it looks horrible. I've seen it. We're to come into that fullness of the understanding that the head has. Second mark of maturity is stability. We're no longer children. Oh, did you hear this? Oh, I wonder if this... Oh, did you hear that? And we're tossed to and fro and... And guess what they're doing now at that congregation? And guess this and that? Stable. No longer children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting. I got a lion there. I should have put a wolf. Because in other places in Scripture, it talks about these people as wolves coming in amongst the sheep. Are we stable enough to identify a wolf right away? Even a wolf in sheepskin? Third mark of maturity, speaking the truth in love. That's a phrase, but in Greek it's really truthing. It's one word. Third mark of, of maturity is truthing. Speaking what is true 
What comes out of our mouths? Is it true? Being true, our walk, what we do, does it line up with truth himself? Our walk and our talk should be ruled by love. That is, by God himself, who is love in his very being, who is truth in his very being. Is willing to say and do even the hard truths, motivated by God, who is love and truth. Thinking of John the Baptist, he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Didn't mean that John shriveled up into this little ball and was never seen again. Herod, you're committing sin. John spoke the truth. When it needed to be spoken and where it needed to be spoken, and he gave his life. And that was Christ's fault. Because Christ is the truth, and he followed his Lord and spoke the truth. Just a little summary. The fullness of Christ. He's given us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to prepare the people of God for works of service, to build up the body of Christ into unity and maturity. I have to thank a Catholic priest for that picture. The head, Christ, verse 16, from whom the whole body joined together and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. One of my hobbies is I have a book that nurses use when they're studying anatomy and I've been studying it for a while. And I was reading this passage a long time ago. I had just colored the knee joint, and I was, and I sat down and I read that passage, and I looked at that, and you see those two little green ones right there in the middle? They're pulling in opposite directions. Why? you see the neck there? What if I only had one set of muscles? I need both, right? The whole body joined and knit together. Are you and I knit together? Do you care what happens to me? Do I care what happens to you? Do I love you? 
do I totally depend on you? Am I knit with you? I've watched this in the halls at Prairie where the eye decided that it wanted to watch a girl but the feet were taking the guy to class. Is the eye and the toe of PTC United? Are the seven churches, eight churches, nine churches of Three Hills United? Are we going the same direction under the head? In conclusion, I have some questions with the goal of promoting us to consider if and how we are working together in unity, how we are being equipped and doing the work of edifying and building the church in unity and love. And I really would appreciate it if I got answers from every one of you. You've got them in your bulletin. It's online. But here they are. We're trying to figure out where, Prairie is go where PTC is going. Who are we? What are we? We will never figure that out until each one of us figures it out together. How am I practically using my own gifts? When I was born, I, physically I was given gifts. I wasn't given sports gifts. I was given musical gifts. I was given artistic gifts. I was given teacher's gifts. There's other gifts I was not given. When I'm born again spiritually, the Holy Spirit gave me gifts because he's putting me into the body and he wants me to play a part in that body. Do you know your gifts? Albert Eamon took us through this quite a, a number of years ago. And many of us discovered our gifts. Have we been using them? Do we know them? Can we use them? Am I using my gifts in close relationship with those gifted to PTC, the pastors, elders, teachers, preachers, and evangelists? Am I using my gifts in relationship to those that Christ gave as leaders to the congregation, to the churches? Or am I doing my own thing off here, doing my own thing? I don't care what PTC is doing, I'm doing this. Am I allowing the Holy Spirit to guide the use of the gifts he's given me to contribute to keeping oneness in PTC? Some of our gifts can be so opposite. Are we working together for the smooth moving of the body, the oneness of PTC? How am I doing in my working relationships with other gifted men and women in PTC? I, I, I really do want you to turn in some answers. And this is the big question. How has our Lord uniquely fitted and placed PTC in the body of Christ? 
Why does this congregation exist? In the body of Christ, in the church worldwide, locally and worldwide, what does he want to do? We've been doing a little bit of talking. We have some ideas. We look at the congregation, who's here, what's God gifted the congregation. I think before we can progress in unity with the body, we need to know who we are and why God's brought PTC to existence. It isn't for us. It isn't for me. It's to the glory of God, to the glory of the Father, to the glory of Christ. It's to build the church. There are people in this town who haven't got a clue what church is. Can we go out and bring them in, build the church? Till that day when Christ says, the number's complete, I'm coming back. The Father says, go back. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And he gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love.